1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20 through 40. Sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? And if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, he's a god. He's either musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. At the time of the offer of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord. He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brooks of Kishon and slaughtered them there. We are in week nine of the History of Redemption sermon series. That alongside of the, the readings at BibleTogether.com and the reflections that are found there, we're tracing God's revelation. All right, this is God's own self-revelation about who he is 
and what he has done in redemption history, his revelation of a purpose to redeem a people for himself out from among creation, a rebellious creation. We're more than halfway through. Nice work, especially those of you who are following along with us at the BibleTogether.com, the reading plan that's there. You're, you're with us, and, and we're making our way through. I know that a number of the kids have been following along together. I, I just want to plug the Tool Dwell app. If uh, you parents uh, don't know what that is, ask your kids. They'll teach you, uh, and they'll help you to learn how to run it. It's a, it's a great tool for reading, even for the non-readers in the room. You can follow along and encounter the Word. We've worked our way together to just recap for a moment from creation and, and the fall of mankind into sin through God's early interactions with mankind, his, his judgment and His grace that was present in the flood. And his judgment and his grace that is present in the scattering at Babel. And we've seen God's call. We've seen his call specifically of a man named Abraham. And his grace toward the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. We're going to say those names many times today. We've seen God's provision. And we've seen his multiplication of the people through uh, provision and the multiplication of the people in Egypt through the provision of Joseph in a time of famine in Egypt. We've seen God's rescue. We've seen God's giving of the law. We've seen God's establishment of a covenant through Moses and the Exodus. And we have a glimpse of the entrance of the people into the land. In Joshua, we've seen the season of Judges. We've seen that season of Judges with Samuel come to an end with the establishment of the kingdom, the kingdoms with Saul and then David. Then last week, we saw Solomon, David's Son, and we saw him dedicating a temple. And last week we had again this echo of God's covenant work its way through that prayer that Solomon offered at the dedication of the temple. God's covenant of blessing and curse. I mean, it's true. God promises they're sure blessing for obedience, curse for disobedience, but also a promise to redeem. We see a little hint of that promise again in our passage today. This morning, we're going to meet one of the greatest of the prophets. We actually named our first son after this prophet, Elijah. The name Elijah, it's El and Yah. In fact, a lot of other language, certainly including Hebrew, don't say that Jah, they go with the Yah, Elijah. Or El means God. It's more of a general term for God. And then Yah is a, an abbreviation of that Yahweh, right? The, the Lord, the very name of God. And so we have this El Yah, God is the Lord. Now God is not God, you know. You figure him out, you name him whatever you want. You encounter him in your culture, in your place, in your nation, in your family, in your ethnos, whatever, no, God is Yah. There's one God. And this is, is in Elijah's name, all right? It's actually in our passage this morning. Now, of all of our kids' names, people have found Elijah's name the hardest to spell. I find that kind of interesting. And yet, Elijah is one of the greatest and most famous of all of the biblical characters, Elijah. And people can't seem to spell it. That's cool. Just the other day. Uh, this was a fascinating spelling. 
uh, you know, when you get your cups at, at, uh, at, at uh, stores and they write the name of your, uh, your name on the side of it and they're just sort of spitballing it, <laughs> you know? Well, somebody decided to go with E-L-Y-Z-H-A. I'm like, that's good. That's good. It's a good pronunciation, but not even close to the way that it's spelled in the scripture. It just, it just reminded me of this. Here's this story that, that's so famous, so familiar to so many, and yet so unfamiliar to so many. And that, ought, that, that should not cause some sort of mockery or derision here. It ought to cause grief. Oh my goodness. We are in the ninth week of a great redemption story. And so many in this room know the story. How sweet to know the story. But our grief ought to be so few know the story. And so this time in Bible Together, and BibleTogether.com, and the, 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 the reading plan is, that's there, it's not just for you and your families. I, in fact, I didn't have you and your families in my mind when I first created it. What I had in mind is there are so many who don't know the story. And what if somebody would read it together with them? I just encourage you to that. What if somebody knew how to name, what if someone knew how to spell my kid's name? That's not cool. That doesn't matter. But because someone had read the Bible with them and they got to know that God is Yah. And that meant something to them because you read the scriptures and they too know the story of redemption. Let's pray together that God would do that work even in our midst this morning. God, we need to know you. Our hope is in you. You have given us a great grace of revelation. You did not have to give us your word, but you did. And you've given us your word and you've preserved your word and your church has suffered greatly over the course of many centuries to, that this word would come to us today. And we have this history of redemption. We have the word of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us attention, that would, with excitement and expectancy of celebration, we would lean forward into what you have to teach us today by your word. Spirit, we pray that you would make effective the words of your grace in every heart here, that every heart would be compelled to bring this news to another. Thank you, Lord. We confess God is the Lord. And so we pray in your name, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, we are going to pay attention to this story. We're going to walk through it very quickly. We're just going to sort of take a peek at some of the elements of the story, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to observe three things about what we have seen there. We begin with the prophets of Baal, verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. What prophets? Well, if you go actually back to verse 19, you see that Elijah gave this command or this instruction to King Ahab to send and gather all, all Israel to the Mount Carmel and called together 450 of the prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah told King Ahab to gather these, but Ahab is repeatedly pointed out throughout the history of the kings and the chronicles 
as a wicked, wicked king. He's an exemplar, wicked king. Especially how he brings all of the surrounding nations and their gods into sort of syncretize with this odd religious flavor that had grown up under Jeroboam. And Elijah makes this demand to Ahab. And he says, no, you go and get those prophets of Baal and you go and get those prophets of Asher and you bring them here and we're going to meet. I have a word for the people, Elijah is essentially saying. But uh, Ahab, he gathers the 450 prophets of Baal, but he doesn't bring the Asherah prophets, which is interesting because those are the prophets of his wife, Jezebel. Uh, I don't know if maybe Ahab has a little inclination of what might happen here if Jezebel's holding back, but she is also wicked in her syncretism and in her false idol worship. But here they are. We do get the prophets of Baal there. They gather at Mount Carmel. Elijah has this question for the people and all of the false prophets who are there. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to the people and said, I think that's so important. Who's he addressing? Don't miss it. He's addressing the people. There are various people who are there. We have Ahab. We have the prophets of Baal. And then we have the people who are there. Elijah is addressing the people. We're going to come back to that a number of times, but note that. And here's what he says to the people. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer, and the people did not answer him a word. What do they do? How long are you going to go on limping? Well, a little while longer at least, evidently. That's the essence of Elijah's question. The people of the northern kingdom, Israel, they had cut themselves off from the worship that was taking place in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom as the dynasty of David continues on in that southern kingdom, also known as Judah. And that northern kingdom, they've gone off after many other idolatrous practices. Make no mistake, that's happening in the south as well, but particularly in in the north, cut off from worship at the temple as God has instructed the people to gather. They've gone off in many ways, particularly they worship the god Baal. And Elijah is calling the people to decision. Like, I see what you're doing. It's not just prophets. The prophets have people who listen to them and follow them and enter into their idolatrous practices. King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had made their decision. They're not limping between opinions. They're going full bore in one direction, as we'll find the prophets of Baal also. This is not a question that Elijah is asking them. They've made their decision. They know where they're going. Elijah's appealing to the people of the land that they would turn in repentance and worship the one true God, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the things to consider in this passage is what's the nature of what's going on in this story? Is this God exercising and and revealing his judgment? Make no mistake, you read the last verse with us. Yeah, it's coming. But I would argue that this passage is mostly about God asserting his redemption. God is asserting through the prophet Elijah a word of redemption to a people who are wavering. Does anyone here? I don't know the answer to this question. I know my heart has to engage with this question, but is there anyone here who is wavering, 
limping along between two opinions. And what you need this morning is the assertion of the sovereign providence of God for redemption, that you would believe. Now, Elijah, in verse 23, he sets the parameters for the standoff. Verse 23, we have two bulls, one for each, the, the, the group of prophets, and one for Elijah. And he let them choose one bull for themselves. They cut it into pieces, lay it on wood, but don't put any fire to it. And then the prophets are to call on their God. So you've got a bull, you've got wood with no fire. It's not a very good barbecue, all right? It's, it's actually important to know. Like, this isn't gonna, it's not a very good sacrifice either. Like, you got, you got the bull, you got it all cut into pieces, it's all ready. You got wood, but no fire. Call on your God to fix that problem. Verse 24, you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. The deciding factor is this. Who will answer the call by fire? Whose offering is going to be moved from just cold meat on wood? Whose offering is going to become a burnt offering? Hear that. What's going on here? This isn't just fire from heaven. This is a burnt offering, a sin offering, an offering of atonement. Whose offering will become a burnt offering and whose offering will remain a useless mess of misguided religious fanaticism? That's the issue at hand. Verse 25, Baal, you go first. Choose for yourselves. Prepare it. Call in the name of your God. Don't you put fire to it. Your God's got to do that. And they called out, verse 26, they took the bull given to them, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, oh, Baal, answer us. But there's no voice. No one answered. And I love this. And they limped around the altar that they had made. What, what, did, what was Elijah's question to the people? How long? How long are you going to go on limping? And what did the prophets do? They're just limping their way around this mess of meat and wood. No answer, no voice. Make note. Limping around. The prophets of Baal had made their decision. They really did believe. And it turns out, if you look, as you read on, Elijah begins to cry out and mock them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or relieving himself or on a journey, asleep. Maybe he needs to be awakened. As Elijah's mocking them, they cried out aloud. And what did they do? They start cutting themselves. So now they've got meat. And they've got wood, no fire. And they've got their cries around, and they've got their own blood. Listen, they poured themselves fully and authentically into their belief. And what we find is it turns out, as we'll consider later, to be fully and authentically faith-filled is not enough. It's not enough. Nobody could argue with these guys' belief. 450 of them limping around this altar, cutting themselves, adding their own blood to the mess. 
It's not enough. So Elijah mocks them. Let's first say that the machinations, all of the movements and labors of idolatry and false religion, they are contemptible. They are easily mocked. Maybe he's musing. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a long journey, and and he'll get the text message when he gets back, and he'll get back to you. Maybe fire can come down next week sometime. Or maybe he's sleeping, you know, with a fall back and all that. Maybe it didn't just change on his phone. Mocking him. Easily mocked. But we also have to admit, friends, listen, it's so easy to mock. E-L-Y-Z-H-A. So silly. You don't know how to spell Elijah. We can mock lots of ways. But let's consider how much of what passes for Christianity today in contemporary culture is also easily mocked. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's fog machines on the one hand or legalism on the other hand or theological snobbery and infighting on the other hand. Easily mocked so much of what passes for Christian religion. We would do well to consider Elijah's jeering and ask, is there any contemptible, mockable elements of our own, of false religion that have made their way into our own false practices? We would do well to hear the mockery and say, is there anything in that for me? Is there any way that we do not make a simple plea, Lord God, send atoning fire? Do your work while we wait. How much do we add to that? What's Elijah's point in his mockery? I don't think he's just making the story entertaining, though it helps. Come on. (laughs) It's a good story. There's so many puns. There's so many jeers. There's so much contrast in here. But I think what he's actually doing is he's making a contrast between the true worship and the false worship, the the true God and the false gods. The prophets of Baal worship a God who is no God at all. And so they cried, and so they cut after their custom. This was their custom. Like This isn't something they're like, that day they thought, hmm, what should we do? It's not working. I mean, it's been from morning till afternoon. What do we do with our afternoon? No, like this is what they did. This is the nature of their religious practice. This is blood gushed out. There's more blood than fire happening over there in the Baal camp. And that's about all we have in our culture, isn't it? We have blood, we have violence, we have vitriol that's gushing out everywhere, but the gods are silent and we are more anxious than ever. Do you hear that? There's a lot of religious zeal being practiced. It's not working, and it's at least midday. We have a frenetic mess that we've made of our lives and of our culture. It's easily mockable, and it's also easily grievable when we see, like, this is us. We're right in the middle of this mess. Midday has passed. Their fanaticism, it's repeated, and it's emphatic, and they rave, and they, they voice, and they limp, and they cut, and there's no voice, and there's no answer, and there's no attention. You look, you see that verse 29? They're raving on, but there's no voice. No one answered. No one paid any attention. All the pleas of a people crying out in their various imagined customs. And there's no attention. 
Then we have the prophet of the Lord. From verse 30 on, Elijah said to the people. You see that again? Who's he addressing? What is this passage for? It's not for the prophets of Baal. Their future is set. Elijah's appealing to the people. The story doesn't actually have a hard transition between 29 and 30. I I think it is right to imagine the prophets of Baal seem to be crying out and limping their way around their no-fire altar while Elijah says, hey, people, leave them over there. Y'all come over here. And so in the background, you have the noise of a people gushing and cutting and yelling with no attention and no fire. And Elijah begins to speak. He says, come near. Elijah's whole concern is for the people. We're told in verse 30 that he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He repaired the altar of the Lord. It hadn't just fallen into disuse. It had been destroyed probably by the false prophets that are over there screaming with no attention from their God. And what does Elijah do? Verse 31 and 32 are important. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. This is the Lord's altar. It had been destroyed, and he rebuilds it in the specific way. Elijah is establishing an altar that's clearly marked as belonging to the Lord. This is not Baal's altar. And this is not a random altar for whatever God may pass by. This is the Lord's altar. And how does he reveal that it's the Lord's altar? Because this is the altar of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of the 12 tribes of Israel. Fundamental to so much of the error of the north was it's the 10 tribes who had broken away. And they'd cut themselves off from the worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And they divided the people of God The 12 tribes of the people are now the two sets of kingdoms, and this ought not be. The Lord had established worship for a whole people. This, friends, that Elijah builds is a 12-stone altar. It's a place of worship for the whole of the people because it is an altar for the worship of the one God. This is not the God of the north. This is not a God of the northern kingdoms. This is not a God of the Baals. This is the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that will send his fire. And Elijah, he notices, the, they notice Elijah's preparations in verses 32 and 33. He makes all these preparations with, with wood and then the cut up bull put on the wood, the four jars of, of an offering. He calls to the people to go and get that. He presumably does the rest, but he goes and gets the people, and they're the ones who add the the water to the fire, and it falls down, so it fills the trench that is around it. What happens, even when the bales are crying out in the background, they're cutting themselves in a frenzy, verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, so while they're still crying out over there, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Don't miss that. Elijah is the Lord's servant. He's not a miracle worker. He is not a great prophet. He's distinct from the prophets of Baal. And he's distinct from the other gods as one who is marked out as a servant of God. And what he does, he does at God's word, not at his great power as a prophet. All that is taking place is at the word of God. Elijah's hope as he's as he going about as the prophet of the one true God, he has a hope. If you continue on, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. That's his hope. That they would know that the Lord is God and that you have turned their hearts back. Well, that's an interesting phrase. It doesn't say that they would turn their hearts back that they would know that you are God and that you have revealed redemption. Fire fell, verse 38, and it consumed everything. Fell, consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust licked up the water that was in the trench, not just the water of the altar, but the trench that was around the altar. There was nothing left. An all-consuming fire falls. Everything. What's the response? Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. And what did they say? The Lord, he is God. At the command of Elijah, they seized the prophets And they executed God's own revealed judgment according to the law on idolaters. And they executed the 450 prophets of Baal. Now, before we turn to application, this is not the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets. If you've taught it that way, if you've read it that way, read again. This isn't a confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This is the Lord who has orchestrated in his sovereign provision of grace all of these events to redeem a people to himself. Friends, did I just summarize the whole story of the scriptures? Or did I summarize just like this short passage? It's the same story over and over again. It's not some great confrontation between armies and kings and peoples. It's not just the revelation of judgment, though make no mistake, there's judgment there. What the story of the scriptures is, is a revelation of God's redemption. That all the people who are brought near to hear it would believe. This morning I have three things that I want us to see from this passage this morning. There's so much we could see. Let's just get it down to these three very quickly. Verse 28. We've already gone at it a little bit. We'll go at it one more time. They, that is the prophets of Baal, cried out, cried aloud. They cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Sorry, kids. It's kind of gross. It is gross. And our response ought to be, oh, do we have to read that again? No, we don't have to. Not right now. But it is gross. But nobody can underestimate the fact that these are people of sincere error and costly customs. 
These prophets, they are dedicated, faith-filled. They have developed customs by which they would display their sincerity at great cost to themselves. That's how they would display that they're really, really, really prophets of Baal. But this is the way of idolatry every single time. And friends, you don't have to worship Baal. I don't think I've personally met someone who, who by, by name, worships Baal. But I know many, and in my wayward, syncretistic, idolatrous heart, I know what it is to go after idols, even named idols. Our idolatry, false gods, vain pursuits, disordered desires, all manner, all of these have lofty promises. They hold up great things for us, and so we pursue them. We don't worship idols because we're like, I don't really want to worship an idol, but I guess I'll worship Baal. No, we worship idols because we want to, because they made a promise, and we want what it promises. But in the end, they cost us all of our devotion. An idol won't let up. If you want to talk legalism, pursue an idol. There is no grace with idolatry. You have to achieve and labor and pay to get what it promises. Meanwhile, the idols don't answer. They don't pay any attention. And they never notice when you've done it all. Because they're dead. They're dead idols. And friends, if you link your life, your hope, and your future, and your labor, and your legalism to idolatry, which is dead. You're dead. You have no hope. Friends, I think in the moment in which we live, we live in a season of authenticity. It's as though we, we only believe, if you believe hard enough, that we can manifest greatness. We can, if we believe hard enough, if we look inside enough, if we labor enough with enough sincere authenticity, belief and devotion. And yet what we find is it's not enough because reality doesn't, it doesn't originate somewhere inside of us. Reality doesn't care about what's going on in here and how sincere we are to our own emotions and desires. Reality doesn't care. All manner of experts in the culture are strutting about like prophets of some great God of progress. Strutting around, limping around. But if you look a little closer, you'll see that there is a limp to their strut. They have no substance. They change their opinions to fit some new failing of their idolatry. And as the ideologies of so much of the culture are revealed to not really work with reality, you just make a little adjustment, and now it'll work a little while longer. And what are you supposed to do? Sacrifice everything to it. Conform around whatever the ideology happens to be. The rules of psychology and sexuality and identity, are they're changing every day. I can't keep up, but you have to. You have to. If you're going to satisfy the ideological idolatries. 
what was celebrated yesterday, it's canceled today, and you move on, and the prophets progress in their limp. They're sincere, dogmatic, even if it's sincere dogmatism in error. But the customs, and this is so important, this is the tragedy, the customs are costly. And I just look around and I see so much price being paid in the pursuit of vain ideologies. The tragedy of our moment is that unlike the prophets of Baal, the prophets of progress aren't the ones that are cutting themselves. They've got the people in on the dance. While the experts and the prophets of progress sit in their expert places and live their expert lives. It's a tragedy. It's a loss. It's a suffering that ought to grieve a people who know the one true God. Friends, the gospel of the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not an idea. It's not an emotional disposition, and it's not an ideology because it's not idolatry. The Lord has spoken. It's true. And what he speaks are true ideas. It's true. The word of the Lord stands, though. And the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord stands, and it remains, and it doesn't change because he's the creator, God. The word that he has spoken is reality. More than that, the gospel is word, but it's word in action. You see, the gospel is not a mere ideology. It's not a mere philosophy. It's not a mere word. Elijah is the prophet of the God who hears and acts. We don't just have a belief of what God would do to the fire. We have a belief in the God who has consumed the whole thing. In action, we follow a God who's active in history. Second, this is a simple one, but it's the most profound. The Lord is God. Like, I know, I know. Next. Do you? The Lord is God. Elijah's been making a point that there's one God and he is the Lord. We remember that when God revealed his name to Moses, and he, he tells him, Yahweh is my name. I am. What did he say? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Lord, according to the word of his covenant, has promised not only blessing and curse, but he's promised redemption that he would reveal through a particular people. He's revealed blessing and he's revealed curse, but to this people he has revealed a redemption that now we look to. And so what we have in our passage is not just a miracle show. It's a fascinating show. It would be an interesting movie. You might have to look it away at a couple parts. But it's a fascinating story. But it's actually not a miracle show. What's actually happening here is a sacrificial offering of atonement for sin. Do you hear that? This is not a, a contest alone. Elijah came to that place to demonstrate that all of the atonement of the Baals is false, but there is an all-consuming fire 
that ignites the burnt offering and it works. And all of the sin that is represented in that broken, mutilated, cursed animal burn up. All the way, nothing remains. It is an offering that is the work of the Lord alone. The people drenched the altar. What did they contribute? In the whole story, they contributed water to the fire. If we want to talk about the contributions of our legalisms, that's what our legalisms do. It's like cold water where fire is supposed to burn. We don't contribute anything to the fire of atonement. They brought nothing but their sin and their need for God's act of atonement. One commentator says it this way, what did this all-consuming fire from heaven do? It turned the beast of the altar into a burnt offering. It's just cold meat until it became a burnt offering. No one offered up this offering. Did you notice that? No one walked over and started a miraculous fire. This isn't the great miracle of Elijah. It was the Lord himself who turned it into a burnt offering. The Lord himself made atonement for the sins of the people. And now I'm thinking, I feel like I've heard a story like that before. Who is this God? Well, it turns out that he is the God who secures our salvation. 1 Peter 1.3 says this of this God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect atoning sacrifice, who was consumed, whose blood was spilled, his body was broken to the uttermost to deal with my sin. And what did you and I contribute? Our sin our need. All that's burned away by the consuming fire is burned away, is the consuming wrath of God. And that wrath of God in judgment on that altar, nobody can say God's real happy with that altar on that day, right? God's wrath coming down on the sun on the cross. That's God's judgment on sin. And you know what that is? It's grace to us. God's fire could have come down on all the people, Elijah included. God's wrath could have come down with 10,000 angels on all the guards and all who gathered and the disciples on that day on that hill. And it could get down on me, but it doesn't. And that's grace to us. The fire fell on Jesus. There's a little note of grace in verse 37. Look at it with me very quickly. In verse 37, at the end of the verse, and that you have turned their hearts back. What God is doing is he's revealing, you're my people. You don't get away that easy. Prophets of Baal, they don't get you. I get you. And I will offer a consuming fire by which to make atonement for you. And you'll be mine. God isn't just revealing that he is God. He's revealing that he is redeemer, God. Do you see it? There's a question at the beginning, and it's our last reflection for application. 
It's a question that's the beginning of our passage. It's Elijah's question. They came near to the people, and I would come near to you today, and I would ask, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? I, I do not think that there is a person in this room, including the person speaking, that does not need to ask this question. How long do you, are you going to just go on limping between two opinions? The Lord is patient and that patience runs through the scriptures and the many times that words like, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments? How long will you love vain words? How long will you judge unjustly? How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? You have the martyrs in the heavenly kingdom. And what is their word? O sovereign Lord is their prayer. Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the Lord even looks at the martyrs and he says, not yet. Today remains as a day of grace to you. Friends, there is a call in this passage. Repent. Like today. Like now. Even the people said, well, we'll see how this whole burnt offering thing turns out. We've already seen it. We've already seen Christ and his cross. We've heard news of the gospel and we've seen how it turns out. Repent today. And I would just, last thing. Out loud. Like now. Some of you have been sinning and you've been busy sinning. You think, well, that's kind of my condition. I, I guess I'll just leave it there and, and go on about the other things. God doesn't do that. It is possible right now for that way of sinning to cease, to turn, to cry out and say, Lord God, I turn to you. I turn to you in faith to receive your grace. Stop, turn, repent. You do not have to go on limping. Heavenly Father, we need your grace. We've seen your fire. We need no sign. We only need to believe in what you have revealed. We thank you for your redemption. We thank you for your grace today, Lord Jesus. And so we pray we hope, we expect for your work in our midst today and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.